Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today on the journey towards self-mastery. Our next guest hails from Miami, Florida. She immigrated from Jamaica to Florida at the age of 13. She went on to get a psychology degree and then a bachelor's degree in legal studies at the University of Central Florida. She then attended law school to get her JD degree at Florida A&M. She currently has her own practice, the Hall Law Firm, located in Hollywood, Florida. Her main focus is in immigration services, where she assists immigrants with utilization processes, permanent residency, removal proceedings, family or marriage petitions, and visa applications. Let's welcome today, Ms. Yannick Hall to the program. Yannick, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I am well, man. I'm well. Um, so glad to have you on, man. Been trying to get you on for a minute, man. <laughs> it's my pleasure. I know it, the timing, but guess what? It's no better time than now. Absolutely, man. Immigration, I feel like, is always an issue in the States. So um, all over the world, actually, man, it's always an issue, you know, so it's it's always good timing to talk about this topic. Before we get started, I I know like a lot has happened since the Trump presidency into Biden's presidency. A lot of new things have have occurred. Things have been getting passed. So can you give us like a, a simple debrief on some of the new things like with immigration? and um, some things that we should be aware about? Okay, so first things first. um, Yes, a lot has been going on and a lot was really and truly promised, right? Upon Biden actually taking over the presidency. Um, One of the biggest things that I knew that was, that I know was actually introduced, um, the, the most impacting event that took place when Biden came into office is he had a 100-day halt of all deportations, right? So mm-hmm. that took place and everyone was ecstatic. Everyone was everyone was overjoyed and we welcomed this. He was thinking, okay, you know what? There's not going to be any more deportation for 100 days. This definitely assists, you know, a lot of practitioners in getting, getting evidence, getting whatever they need to get for their clients. We at least had what we believed were 100 days. Mm. But until he started sending the Haitians, I'm guessing. If, but as you <laughs> say, listen, if it's too good to be true. It is right. So uh-huh. literally, not even a month, a month into it, um, that was actually held unconstitutional by a judge in Texas. So before you know it, litigation started in regards to that hundred day halt, and that has still, as you can see, nothing has really taken place in regards to that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, most recently. During Trump, um, Trump's administration, there was also a halt to persons seeking asylum coming into the U.S. from the southern, southern borders, where essentially they were saying that in the event that you were caught on any one of the southern, southern states, including Texas cities, San Diego, um, most popularly Mexico, Texas and San Diego, in the event that you were caught in any one of those, you know, in any one of those borders trying to enter into the U.S., you would actually, you would have to stay in Mexico and await for your case to be heard before a judge, right? 
As soon as Biden came in, we were thinking, okay, he's going to make this change. Not only that, while Biden, while Trump was still president, he frowned upon this idea, right? Mm-hmm. So he came into he came into office, got away, got, did away with it. Now, guess what's back on the market? The same exact policy has now been recently, literally just a day ago, reinstated by the Biden administration. So all individuals that are caught on the southern border from San Diego, Texas City, including Rito, Brownsville, El Paso, and Mexico, will have to wait in Mexico possibly for months in order for an immigration judge to hear whether their asylum cases should be granted or whether it should be denied and they should be sent back home to their country. Wow. So pretty much the same continuation of what was happening before. Same thing essentially being implemented just by a person in a different space. Man, interesting, interesting. Okay, all right. Um, so we will definitely talk about some more current events with immigration, but before we get to that, Let's get some of your own immigration story, man. I know you, you know, you came from Jamaica here at 13. So can you give us a little bit of that background story? Um, what was kind of life like growing up in Jamaica and then just transitioning into here? Okay, so gr- growing up, right? Um, I grew up in poverty. I grew up very poor. Nonetheless, although I grew up in poverty, I grew up actually in, they will call it the ghetto in Jamaica, right? When I say ghetto, I mean literally dirt road. Mm. What part of Jamaica was that? It's from Old Harbor, St. Catherine, right? So I'm from St. Catherine originally. It's like, I know most people are familiar with Kingston, so it's like an hour, hour and a half outside of Kingston. But nonetheless, it's in a town where some persons do know of the town, but I grew up in like in one of those neighborhoods but even though I grew up in a in like a scheme or a community, we lived in on one of those um, on in a they call it a lane actually. So essentially, like an avenue that is underdeveloped because there is no legal electricity. There is there's just strictly dirt roads. There is no legal water. So growing up, water was free, light was free, electricity was free. Cable, we, I don't know, somehow we got cable at some point in time. So it was really like very poor, you know, but I, but even though that was what was going on, my parents were still very protective of me and I was still somewhat sheltered mm-hmm. and not necessarily allowed to exhibit a lot of the or exhibit or experience some of the hardships that I did see my peers around me growing up facing. Mm. You know, my parents always definitely wanted, not saying no, their parents didn't want more for them, but my parents were very intentional on me not experiencing life like that. So it made it somewhat a little bit easier for me. For example, growing up in Jamaica, I never went without food, proper clothing. You know, I, I I was I was fine in that sense, but it was very it was it was somewhat violent though, but not extremely violent. It, it was not extreme violence that I saw, but pretty it was pretty poor. So grew up there, um, lived with mom and dad up until they age of six until they broke up. They split. Then I resided with dad 
and dad was essentially my caretaker. Would not He was my guardian, let's say that. But my aunt on my mother's side, she was my caretaker throughout mm. the process. The family was very close on both sides. Uh, so aunt was essentially caretaker. And, and then, you know, we'd go visit mom, et cetera. Mom got married, um, you know, met someone here, fell in love. They got married. And then one day at the age of, I was in the eighth grade, and mom was just like, hey, we're going to America. And I'm like, no, we're not. <laughs> If you're going to America, I'm not. Because the only thing that I really knew that I wanted to do in America growing up was I just only wanted to go to Disney, Disney World. <laughs> I did not want to do anything else, but I knew that persons that had visas to come to the U.S. to visit, they would go to Disney World. As a kid growing up in primary school when I was 10 and younger, Everyone went to Disney World. So I just wanted to go to Disney World, right? Mm -hmm. One trip. That's all I needed. One trip. So when mom was like, no, we're going to America permanent, I said, no, 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 mommy. I'm good. <laughs> like, I, I really thought that I was going to like, no, I don't want to go to America. You can go. I said, so I told her. I made her an offer. I said, you can go to America. And then you can let me stay here until I graduate high school and come back for me. Wow. <laughs> She told me no. <laughs> she said not not happening. I was I was very sad. I was so so sad. Like I loved my classmates. I loved going to school. I, I felt like I was fine. So I was just like, why not leave me here? Mm. But no, mom. Mom said no. Mom said no. So I dad was in agreement with that with mom. So I had to come to America. You know, we packed up our suitcase. Literally, came to the US with one suitcase. Both of us sharing one suitcase. Left all our possessions. You know, mom had mom was had her own business. She gave everything all up, and we came here. Wow. So, right. what was what was the experience like once you once you got to the United States? Like, you know, you guys are all starting from scratch at the same time. You know. Listen, <laughs> I was a kid. I knew nothing about life. As I said, I felt like my life in Jamaica was pretty good. I was, I felt like I was comfortable. Came to the U.S., started residing with my mom's husband. Things didn't go so well between them. And then they end up breaking up. So I ended up going back to Jamaica to visit my dad, you know, the following summer after I migrated. And I remember getting a phone call from my mom when she said, you know, we're not going to be living there anymore. She goes, we're, we're moving. I said, wait. So literally when she said that, I'm like, wait, what do you mean we're moving? We don't know anyone in America. We don't have any family in America. It's just only yourself and myself. So what do you mean we're moving? Hello, where are we going to go? <laughs> like, no, don't worry about it. I should have been worried. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So as I said, I should have been worried, right? Mom said, don't worry. Not the truth. Came back to America after the summer ended and realizing that, whoa, life is very, very different from what we knew it, you know, in the first year. Mind you, we, we, we were only in America at that point for one year. Um, so after the first year, we were we had to move out because, you know, the relationship is not going good with mom and stepdad and we had to move into a one-bedroom. We had to share a one-bedroom home that we rented for someone because that's all that my mom could afford at the time, you know? 
And then that's where most persons who go through struggles in regards to their status and their immigration um, complexities, that's when I started facing those realities myself. At that time, you know, stepdad was the one who were sorting out the immigration papers. He was the one, you know, working on the green card that God stopped the entire process. Mm. So, right. So, you know, then we were just in limbo, nothing to do. So, yeah, so what we, kind of, what, what paperwork did you guys have? We, we had nothing. We literally had nothing. There was not enough time to get anything. We, we only had our passports and that was it. We had no green card. We had no, no work permit. No, nothing. Jeez. Right. Man. So he, he kicked <laughs> us out and yeah, that was it. Right. So then, you know, that's when the challenges started. So guess what? Here we are in this country with no family. It's just us in this one bedroom. So guess what? We're going to have to figure it out. That was the same year, like the same year y'all went to the U.S.? Literally one year after. Dang. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally one year after starting over from scratch yet again. Wow. So yeah, that's where all the challenges came in. And for sure, I had to dig deep. Really, truly, you know, um, seeing a, a single mother of one. And at that time, my mom did not, she did not finish school in the U.S. She was going to, she was going to school to be a CNA at the time. She didn't have any of that, you know, as of yet. We didn't have a vehicle. Reminder, you live in Florida. You need a vehicle in Florida. The bus system is just so unreliable, especially in Orlando. So she had to be working two jobs, you know, I had to be maintaining school all while we're sharing this one bedroom and sometimes we would not have, you know, what we needed to get by. And mm-hmm. I, I and for some time I did resent my mom because it was just like, listen, I told you to leave me in Jamaica. Like I was like I did not go through these challenges when I was back there. You know, so why you should just like it was kind of one of those circumstances where it was just like you should have listened to me. I told you, so let mm-hmm. me stay. But no, you know, we 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 fought through it for many many years, going through many challenges. As I said, at that point, at at one point, I had no status in the U.S. My mother had no status in the wow. U.S. So Jeez. just like many other immigrants, I was also in that predict predicament where I had no status. At the same time, like, you know, you're going through all this stuff. Like, what was your experience like transitioning to American culture, like in school and all of that? Like, you know, on top of everything. Listen, I was bullied. Mm. I was bullied a lot, actually. Um, I had a very, very thick accent. Um, granted, we, you know, Jamaicans speak English. Nonetheless, there is it's still a dialect that we speak and it's still an accent. And mm-hmm. that accent is there. It was a lot more prevalent. Like, I didn't know how to code switch back then, mm. right? So all I knew was just my accent and learning how to pronounce things, how I was taught back in school. Right. And so, you know what they call it, like, broken English? Like, just yes. to show what people think about it. Like, it's like... <laughs> exactly. So, and not only that, just the pronunciation of certain words, like, I'll never forget. Listen, I was ridiculed by this kid, he's an American, for saying the word Burgundy. And he was like, do you mean Burgundy? <laughs> <laughs> what was the demographics of your school? Was it black? It was a lot of black people. 
people. It was okay. it was mixed sixty percent black and sixty percent white. But the, the the a lot of African Americans they definitely made fun of me for my accent. It was it was rough. It mm. was very rough, you know, dealing with the accent. So especially dealing with dealing with being bullied at school, and then coming coming home to essentially dealing with very limited resources. Mm. So it, it it was a challenge. My grades started going down. They started you know dropping. It was it was just not a good reflection. Yeah, it's like it's almost like a rite of passage, like coming into the country, like and then transitioning with the language and the bullying and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Did yeah. you get yeah. did you did they leave you back a grade? I know that's another pattern, like when you come in from the another country, usually a black country, they're like, Yeah, you were in sixth grade, are you gonna be in fifth grade? Like, did they do that? No. Oddly enough, I was not. So I did not so I left Jamaica half of eighth grade and I just came here. So but I guess because the semesters are different. So the semesters start September in Jamaica to December mm-hmm. and then January to June or July, I believe. And, but over here, the semester ends in May. So right. when I got here, I got here in May. So I guess because May should have been, I guess because I was also almost finished with the eighth grade as well. Mm-hmm. And I had to take a test and I did well on the test. So what they did was they just enrolled me in high school and they allowed me to go into the ninth grade. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So uh, that so, was very. <laughs> so um, during the time, like, what was your, what was your um naturalization, your um citizenship process like? Did it take a long time? Like, did it did it take through like the course of high school? Like, what what was going no. on? Oh no, it took even after high school. Really? It took all Ooh. the yes. Remind and this had been so. Remember, I was here ninth ninth grade to twelfth grade. That's an entire four years, mm-hmm. right? I still was having. I remember when I was eight, I just had turned eighteen and losing my very first job because my employment authorization documents had expired. Mm. So it was well into, and I couldn't even get financial aid for college for my the community college I was going to because I did not have any status in the U.S. So I did not actually get status up until probably six years until after I came six to seven years after entering into the country. Wow. What was what was your uh, process in getting like your status and everything? It was the same. It was. It, OK, so there there are many different ways of getting your status. And I did not find this out until less than a year ago. To mm-hmm. be honest with you, I knew that my mom assisted in getting the status. However, the method that she got a status, I was just not sure. But essentially, there is a there is a path that is called a victim victim against women's act. Mm. Uh, victim against women act is called VAWA for short. So persons who have been, you know, who have come to the U.S. from their home country, they are married to a U.S. citizen, and they've endured whether emotional or physical. Um, abuse from their U.S. citizen spouse, mm-hmm. they can actually acquire status in the U.S. So that was the route my mom took because really and truly, emotionally, we were going through a lot. Mm. It, it was a lot that we were going through. It was a lot of emotional... It was a lot that was going on in the household as well that eventually led to the breakdown of their marriage in regards to emotional abuse that you know ended in the breakup and it was just 
my mom just could not handle it anymore. She couldn't take it. So she just had to leave at that point. So that's what that visa is for. That, that, that visa, that green card pass, is to allow persons who have endured physical or emotional abuse to obtain permanent residency status. But I didn't know that until up until, as I said, less than a year ago, when I requested my documents from USCIS, I noticed that that is how I was able to get status as a child of someone who endured, you know, emotional abuse. Right. And uh, what type of status was that? Was that like a that permanent, was permanent status? Yeah, permanent status. Okay. Permanent Mm-hmm. Got it, got and then it. after that, you know, after obtained my permanent status, five years later, I obtained my my um, naturalization, my citizenship. Um. So in the meanwhile, you are going to college, like you're you got your psychology major for your <laughs> for the community school and everything, and then you transition yeah. to University of Central Florida. So what was your you know college experience like in the meanwhile of all this happening? I could not have any college experience, to be honest. The, the college experience that I hear many people talk about, oh, we had parties, this. I could not have that. Coming from the background I came from, I had to work. So in college, I was literally maintaining a full-time job while attending classes to obtain my bachelor's degree. So literally, not only that, we couldn't afford housing for me to stay on campus. The amount of financial aid I and support I got from, you know, Florida or the Floridian government was just enough to cover my tuition. Books I had to pay for. It. Mm-hmm. So I, I got the got the FAFSA, FAFSA, paid for my it allowed me to pay for my classes, and then I had to work full time to purchase the books. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have that college experience. It was just I understood that I just had to go to school. You just have to drive back home, and that's it. And that was pretty much my college experience. Home, right. work, and school. That was it. But um, you did know you wanted to be a lawyer because you were studying law. Like, what what kind of, like, influenced that decision for you, for you to be like, you know, I want to do, um, you know, I want to study law and I want to become a lawyer. I don't, I don't know if you wanted to be an immigration lawyer at the time, but what kind of, like, um, made you think about law? So, for sure, um, I actually had this, I stayed in some of the age of 12, I remember I entered into a pageant in Jamaica. And I, but by the time, the whole purpose was different. I had to ask my mom, I was like, hey, mom, which, which career makes a lot of money, right? So every island person, they think doctors, nurses, lawyers. Mm-hmm. Literally, those are like the top three. Those are the top three. So back then, mom was just like, oh, a lawyer. So, I was like, so she was a doctor. And I just knew I definitely didn't want to be a doctor, right? She said nursing. I definitely knew that was not it. Me. And she said, lawyer. I was like, oh, okay. I want to be a lawyer. So back then, it was just not a cognizant decision. It was just saying, this is what I want to do. Mm. However, um, it, while taking my undergraduate studies, I was actually, I had an assignment. It was an extra, extra, what is it called again? When you have the extra, extra credit. Extra credit. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was an extra credit assignment that one of my, my professors um, while I was doing my psychology degree, access to go and visit one of these juvenile detention centers, you know, and just sit in and just to see how the process was. So I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll be there for credit. And as I'm sitting there, I literally see these 13, 14, and 16 year old men, or not men, little boys walk up to the stand and they're standing there. 
And some of them, the judge literally knew them by their first name, where you can tell they're so familiar with them and so familiar with the conduct. And out of all the persons that I sat there for those two hours, see, go up to the stand, only one child had their parents Mm. there to assist them, to support them and to back them up. So it, it was really just mind blowing. It was very shocking to see that these very young children were on this role, this repetitive role, to the point where the judge knew who they were. The judge knew their history before even addressing everything else. And I was just like, wow, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, I have to do something. I literally felt a burning urge saying, I have to do something to help. I was like, I can't just be like this. And that was the day I made up my mind. I said, I'm definitely going to do law. That was the very day. And ever since then, it's always been law. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So you get the undergrad in University of Central Florida. What kind of led you towards Florida A&M? Okay. First of all, I didn't know the difference between a PWI institution and an HBCU. (laughs) I was under the impression that college is college. You go there, you have this experience. You're living in Central Florida. There are many Caucasians. Deal with it, right? <laughs> That's just that was just my understanding. But I chose I chose I chose FAMU Law and another school, Barry University College of Law. I I applied to those two schools because they were the most. Um, in regards to financing, they were on the lower cost end versus some of the other universities. And I, you know, listen, I'm still an immigrant, very limited resources. So nonetheless, I, I knew that I, I had to choose one of the, the colleges that were at the cost were on the lower end. So I applied to both, got admitted to both. Barry actually gave me a one-year scholarship. But it didn't, because it was a private university, trust me, that one year, it wasn't worth it to me. So <laughs> I was just like, no, definitely Florida a and right. And it was upon me going there, I was like, wait, this experience is very different, vastly different. <laughs> me actually going to a PWI institution, UCF. Mm-hmm. And I was just literally amazed. That was my first time ever being introduced to scholars who have complexion that looks very similar to mine Mm. and they were so intelligent and had so much information it was just like whoa like it it was it was really one of those things where like well I can't believe I've been this not on this my entire time like where have (laughs) I been like this has been here it it was definitely very eye-opening and very mind-blowing, honestly, for myself to see persons in such high places mm-hmm. actually helping me and teaching me the law. Wow. Did you, uh, did you get involved in stuff on campus? or? Um... Actually, I was a research assistant for two years out of the two and a half years I was in law school. It was not a position that I applied for. I didn't know anything about it. I had this one contracts professor. His name is Professor Griffin, and I'll never forget. Upon me meeting Professor Griffin, I you, up to this day, I think that is one of the one of the most smartest individuals I've ever encountered in my entire life. Hmm. And the reason why I believe that was just how this man 
analyze information and his outlook on life. It was just so vastly different from anything else I've ever heard. I, I, upon sitting in his class, I said to myself, I want to be like him. I want him to be my mentor. I, I just literally said that. And then my friend, my, my friend, she thought I was weird. And I was like, yep, I want to be like him. I, I want to at least, I was like, if I at least had a pint of the knowledge that he, he had, I, I, I would be great. I literally, I was just like, yeah. And then there, he had a legal research assistant position mm-hmm. that he approached me, he approached me for. And I was just, he was just like, you know, I have this position. I would like for you to apply for the position. And I was just like, okay, sure. He goes, you know, prepare your resume and send it to me. And I was like, okay, that's no problem. And I was actually, there were two other individuals in our in my class, in our contract class, that had actually also applied for the position. This was the person who was the number one in our class, mm. our incoming class, that was going up for that position as well. And another classmate, he was also in the top five. Remind you, I'm not up there. Right. <laughs> so I was just like, when I found out that they were going for this position, I was just like, oh, Lord, I'm in trouble. <laughs> He's not going to pick me. And, you know, I had discussions with my friends in law school and one of, one of my friends, he made a really good point. He was, I think he's going to pick you because while they may have intellectually, um, even though academically they were the top, at the end of my, 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 my counterpart, he was just like, I think because you're so eager to learn, I think that's what you have over them. I was like, I don't understand. Anyways. <laughs> Professor, professor actually, he, he, he picked me out of the bunch, which I was just like, wait, what? Dude, you have the number one and probably the number five person in this entire school right now in our class, in our grade, and you choose me? And, and I asked him, I was like, hey, what happened? He was, the difference is I can see your fire, the fire burning inside of you. Mm. And I was just like, whoa. Yeah, so I, for up until my graduation, I did, he did a lot of, academic papers in many, many different countries on oil resources, water resources, um, the lack thereof of water, how oil is being, um, how the oil industry is being, what's the word I'm looking for, is being exploited by so many different countries. And not only that, crimes and how crime is, is affecting many countries. Like, and I'm telling you, these are papers where he presented in front of like um he presented to the UN he he just was this man was brilliant trust me and he had me review his papers mm. review his body of work correct the citations of course <laughs> go through <laughs> the citations and that's where my love for legal research actually began just by reading his information knowing how to find the proper citation for his words and knowing how to find the proper resources to correct any errors there were you know grammatically in his paperwork or correct any of the citations that he made in his paper and I, I loved it I loved it that is awesome man um yes. to have that experience um so you continue on I'm guessing after that class um was that early on in in, in yeah the- it was yeah my very first year first year in law school he asked he had me he asked me to be his research assistant I was just like sure let's do it so what was the rest of the process of of uh, law school like for you law school is studying law school is literally not having a personal life 
there's no better way to say it. You literally have to study. And for every hour that you're in class, you're going to have to study at least 10 hours for that one hour that you're in class, technically. Mm. So you're spending at least 40 to 60 hours a week studying. Wow. And remind you, you're, you're literally only in class for an hour, hour and a half. Now. But you're having to take on a class load of roughly about four to five classes per semester. Mm. so you're in class for a lot of the day but then for the remainder of the time you have to study because you don't you get uh only a midterm and then however the midterm is not that's not your final score majority of your actual final score for each class mm. was determined based on your final exam mm. so you had to accumulate decipher that information create your outline and study that to ensure that you can accurately apply the law to whatever scenario that they, they gave you during a three-hour exam at the end of each semester. Got it, got it, got it. All right, so, you know, you study your butt off all the way through, um, and then you, <laughs> you get through um, and graduate and all that, and um, now you got to take your bar exam. I know every every lawyer has, like, stories about the bar exam so what was the process of you know preparing for that exam and then taking that exam for you yeah the bar everybody knows <laughs> about the bar i so honestly I, I never wanted to take the bar even though i've as i've told you i had such a strong urge to be an attorney i don't know what it was somewhere along the lines i was just like i don't know if i want to be a lawyer i was just <laughs> like let me just get the degree and the degree can probably launch me into places where I don't have to go through all that, right? Because I, I did recognize that I didn't like to do trials or the arguings. And I didn't, I realized that, okay, maybe that's not what I want to do. So right? I was just like, okay, let me just get this degree and that'll be it. Mm. You know, I was like, I don't have to take the bar. I don't have to think to prove to anyone. Like, I'm good, right? No, my professor, he was just like, he goes, okay, I can understand that. But he goes, at least just take it just because, just in case, as a backup plan. Mm -hmm. So I said to myself, I said, okay, I'll take it as a backup plan. But if I fail it, I'm only taking it one more time and that's it. Right? <laughs> so bar prep is three months of studying. You have even less of a social life while studying for this for this big exam for the big day literally monday through saturday just wall to wall every hour studying non-stop for two to three months mm. and not only that in school they don't they do have some prep classes that help you understand how the bar is but depending on how good your school resources are that determines a lot on how well or not so well how you do so, you know, the bar prep programs, it was, it was very different. Um, and I, I had also did a life change during that time. I stopped eating meat. So oh, not wow. only, was, right. So not only was I now not eating meat to some, something I've, I've done my entire life, the making that huge life change here, I was studying for two, two and a half months consistently, 90% of my days hmm. to, for this big test. So yeah, I got in, I got into, I'm very nervous, of course, barely slept that night. I am telling you, during that night, I was trying to sleep. I kept trying to remember stuff. And I was like, Lord, do not let me fail. <laughs> right? So 
the mm-hmm. go in. So you remind you is this two days, two days worth of testing, mm-hmm. six hours, both days. Mm-hmm. Right. So go in the first day. The first day is the Florida portion. Second day is the Florida multiple choice. Okay. Um, so I'm like, I was not, I was not so confident in the Florida day. I, I must admit that because the structure of how to write essays versus the second half, which were multiple choice. I was very confident in the multiple choice, but I knew that essay writing was my weakness. Mm-hmm. No matter how many times I've written so many essays during my bar prep, my essay writing skills were not on point. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was very worried. Um, so I did walk into that not so confident. Listen, after the essay portion, I walked out. And we got, we received a criminal law scenario, and I heard people picking up crime that I did not put on my paper, and I was like, oh, I don't think I did so well. <laughs> I was just like, I don't think I did so well. And not only that, I didn't have because they only came, they mainly catered to people who ate meat. I went into the second portion of my day one very hungry. So that also played a factor into me not doing so well. It was extremely cold. You're stuck in this warehouse, essentially, full of just benches and just proctors walking up and down your row the entire time with thousands of people in a testing center. Yes, it was very, very intimidating. For So it was just like I was very cold on the first day, second half, very hungry. And it was just not a good experience. Second day, though, I was confident, right? So I told myself, okay, I brought my lunch. I said, I, that's not going to happen to me today. I'm going to be ready. And I was already confident in my skills for the, you know, the multi-state bar exam. So I was just like, okay, I've been doing well on this section. Let's get it. If mm-hmm. I wasn't able to do well on the first day, I could always make it up on the second day, right? So I'm like, okay, I go in. I'm there. I do my multiple choice, do my first three hours multiple choice, my second three hours multiple choice. I'm feeling like, okay, I, I think I did it. I, I think I did well. I get the results back. <laughs> I open the results. Well, first of all, you can check online your, your score. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I see, I see fail, pass. And then I'm like, okay, please be a pass, please be a pass, please be a pass. <laughs> right? <laughs> Because you can have fail, pass, fail if you have enough, if you have enough, um, if you did so well on the second portion to have additional, additional points to carry over to the, to the first day or whatever portion right. you like. Right. No, I had some extra points, but unfortunately I felt short. Oh, I, yeah, I felt short. I fell short by six points. Oof. I was just like... That means I have to do this again, and I told myself, I said, "No, I can't do this again. I can't, I, I can't do this again. Like I don't think I can do this again." But I had to do it again. Mm-hmm. I absolutely had to do it again. How, how quickly? How quickly did you do it again? Right. So the first testing is in February. The second testing is in July. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, February and July. So you had to either capture February or the July bar. So mm-hmm. after February, granted, we, we, was it July? Yeah, July. So you had to wait 14 weeks, I believe. So imagine wait, or no, no, six weeks. So imagine going through that, waiting six weeks, getting the results, then have to get back into game mode to take the test, 
literally in a couple months. So, mm. oh my goodness, I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this again. My mom was just like, no, I think you really should, you know, I think you really should. But you can, you can choose, I could have chosen to take either half of the first part, which is the portion I failed, or I could have taken the entire exam over again. Mm. And I said to myself, I was just like, mm, I think I'm going to take only the first half that I did not pass. At that point, I got a tutor who was also a professor for mine in, in, in law school, you know, and I got some advice from some persons who who had passed the bar prior to me. And they told me what to do, just study the prior questions. I studied the questions. I studied the essays that persons wrote before me that they used as model answers. Study that literally. I printed out over 300 um, model answers and studied that for months. Study that and I mirrored that. I mirrored everything as best as I could for everything that I saw. And listen, when the test results came back after the the second the second taking, the second second sitting, I couldn't even I couldn't even open my own results. <laughs> I, I couldn't. At the time I was dating my now husband and I literally because of the disappointment I faced the first time, I was just like, I just can't do this. So I gave him my number on the morning up. I said, listen, you check it and you tell me. At this time, the day when the results came out, the morning it came out, I'm sitting, I'm sitting in this job that I've been in for a month. I hate this job. I hate this job so bad. I literally was praying to God, God, please take me from this job. Please take <laughs> me from this job every day. What was I it? was so miserable. I was a paralegal for a law for a law firm, but it was just it was just horrendous working there. The, just the work environment was just so toxic. I was just like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I applied for jobs every day. I was just like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. <laughs> right? So the morning off, he calls me and I'm there. And I was like, okay. So he goes, he sends me a screenshot. I'm like, what is this? I don't understand. So he goes, look, look, look. So he circles it. And I was like, ah, I passed? Yes. Listen. I cried just <laughs> sitting at that desk and I was like, Lord, this is it. You answered my prayer for taking me from this job. Because although I knew that I couldn't work with that firm, I knew that there was no way, no way I was going to work for them. I said, nope, I'm leaving this job and I'm never coming back. <laughs> so what was I your plan? What was your plan? I didn't leave that my plan was like, so this is my plan. I was like, okay, I'm going to find a job hopefully in an area that I somewhat like, and then I'll probably stick around there for some time. Mm -hmm. But I had already, you know, from undergrad, I had already been working with law firms. So I kind of knew my way around some things like debt defense. Like I worked with that boss for like two to three years. So I knew my way in that area of law. And then that that firm, they did, they did um, creditor suits. So they sued people for that. So I kind of knew my my ins and outs there a little bit. So funny enough, another firm, I, I started applying for jobs and they hired me to be an attorney. They, they, they believed in me. I said, okay, let's do this. They mm -hmm. hired me to actually sue people for debts that they owed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that That's does not right. sound like fun. <laughs> it was not fun. <laughs> right. So then I got the job and I was I was happy. I was like, okay, this is this is my chance. I'm I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna learn as much as I can. Definitely gonna utilize this experience and I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna launch out and I'm gonna be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I worked with them for one year. 
and learning how to sue people. You know, I encountered so That sounds so people. terrible. That sounds so bad. <laughs> no, trust me, I felt bad. I, I, I literally felt bad for so many. I will never forget this lady. I went to court once, you know, I had a pretrial conference. I went to court once and she came there and we were suing her for a debt from 1996. Mm. remind you this is 2019 we're suing her for a debt from 1996 and this is for a car that we re- that was repossessed then and then they had a judgment boss my boss purchased the judgment then he renewed the judgment so that he's now able to sue for the debt you know upon that expiration yeah, and she she literally came in she had a hat on she had and she she had just done chemo Wow. And she said, yes. And she said to me, you know, as you look at, look at it, she showed me the documentation. She goes, this is my chemotherapy. I just paid for this. I just left chemo. And she was like, and now I'm here being dragged here for a lawsuit for, for, um, for, for a debt from 1996. And I've, I've seen these circumstances happen. And I asked my boss, okay, how should I handle cases like this? Is there a quote? Just tell her, work out, work out a payment plan with you. Wow. Or agree to another judgment. And I had to tell her that. I literally, I was there standing in the courtroom outside asking this lady who had just gone through chemotherapy to work out a payment plan with me to pay back a debt. Hmm. That was literally one of the worst days I've ever had working at that firm. I will never forget that. And I was just like, this is, this is not it. The, I, this this does not make me feel good. Mm-hmm. So guess what? Came back on the hunt <laughs> for a job. Because I was just like, I have to find something that aligns with me. It, I did not feel happy. I did not feel satisfied. I did not feel like I was making an impact. Remind you of the story I told you with me sawing the juveniles. That I knew that I needed to do something to positively impact people. And I felt like this did not allow me to do that. Mm. So I then went out on the search for something where I would have felt a little bit more fulfilled. Right. And yeah, and I actually did find, I did find a job. I did find one job. It was working with the Legal Aid Society, um, representing persons or representing children's rights who have been either taken from their parents taken from their guardians due to abuse and I was just like okay you know I, this is something that I feel like it would tug on my heart this is something I feel like it would be worthwhile and I was very ready to accept the job and then my boss gave me a raise <laughs> <laughs> good old raise <laughs> man I took the raise <laughs> I was like sorry kids <laughs> It's not funny, man. It's not. I shouldn't be that. It's not funny, but you know, I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I just have to take the raise. So I took the raise, and, and then I, I, I was unhappy once again. I was just like, <laughs> no. Right, but you know, looking back at the decision now, you know, I'm. I should have. I could have made a different decision, but you know, it, it comes with life and lessons, and you know, maturity, and right. really learning developing and understanding your values so i definitely had that was a life lesson for me did that unhappiness lead to you starting to think about doing your own thing like getting your own offer no it actually did not 
<laughs> that, that unhappiness led me to I just need another job. Like I can't do this. I can't. I can't. I can't keep doing this to people. This is not right. Because I just thought of like while I understand that you know sometimes you owe some funds to persons. I do understand that life happens, mm-hmm. right? A lot of these people, it's not like they didn't want to pay repay back. You know whatever money they borrowed or pay for whatever they purchased with these credit cards. It was just that they were unable to, you know, some of them lost their jobs. Things happen. I get it. So I, I'm very much off that understanding. So I was just like, this is, I don't want to do this. So I, I, I searched for, for jobs. I promise you, I apply for jobs every day. Every day I was, I was doing a job search. And unfortunately, I lacked the experience, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I had no experience. I was still in my first year of faculty. So many firms, a lot of firms actually do not, unless you are, you are in like the top 10% or something, or you went to one of those colleges that they are so top tier, it was very challenging for me to actually break in into another area or another law firm with mm-hmm. very limited experience. So what would you do? So yeah, I, I stuck around for a little bit until I had to... I stuck around for a year and a half, actually. I, I stuck with them for a year and a half. And then I ended up having to take care. I ended up having to, um, I had to have a surgery, you know, mm-hmm. in, back in January of 2020. And, you know, I, that allowed me to have some time to really, really reflect. Right. You know, it, it allowed me, I was out for like two, two months, two to three months. And it allowed me to really to to sit to sit and reflect like, okay, is this really what I would like to do with my life? Like, and if not, this is what not what makes me happy. This is not what is allowing me to feel fulfilled. What is it that will allow me to feel fulfilled? Mm-hmm. And I looked and I was just like, and I was just like, I don't know. I, I just really I was so unhappy. My boss was forcing me to come back to work before I fully recovered. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this pressure. I, I just like, I don't think I can keep this pressure. You know, my husband, it was just like, you know, I, I think you should quit. I said, what? <laughs> Are you crazy? It's like, what? He goes, no, because you're not well. You're not well enough to go back to work 100%. You're requiring you to go back to work 100%. He says, I think you should quit and then take your time off and find another job. I said, okay. Sure, let's try that option, right? Because I, I honestly felt in my heart of hearts that was much better than 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 the current situation I was in. I was like, okay, that's fine. So you mm-hmm. know, I handed my resignation effective immediately. You know, my my HR <laughs> HR called me literally that evening, which is like, hey, what's going on? I like listen. I don't know why you're doing this. I think you need to talk. I think you need to come in the office. We can work this out. And I was just like, no, I don't think we can work it out. He goes, okay, I'm going to give you until, I'm going to give you 24 hours for you to repay. Oh, boy. Right? And I was like, okay, that's fine. Because <laughs> I was like, like, I already knew that I was not going back, but it was just like, okay, you're not giving me a choice. So sure, whatever makes you happy. So yeah, 24 hours, he called back. He goes, what do you think? I said, yeah, I'm not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, I, I didn't go back. And two weeks into me saying, okay, let's find this dream job. The pandemic hit. Man, good old pandemic. 
like no 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 like and the pen it was it was one of the circumstances it was not like Florida, we shut down. Like we were like probably the last state to shut down. Oh right? yeah, I remember that. <laughs> right, we were literally the last state to shut down. So while I'm seeing, you know, many other states shut down, and I'm just like, okay, okay, this is maybe getting serious. Okay, yeah, yeah, this is definitely getting serious. To this is serious. So when I remember the state actually saying, yeah, we have to shut down. There's no movement for X amount of time. I was like, wow, like this is really happening. And I'm just like, wait, what does that mean? Am I gonna get a job? Like. Well, wait, what's going to happen now? Mm-hmm. And panic sets in because my grand plan that I had, I'm just going to find this dream job that I'm going to love. They're going to pay me enough. I'm going to be happy. And no, this, this, I felt like it was halted, which it was halted. Mm-hmm. So I went back. I still went, kept to job hunting, looking for jobs, looking for jobs. However, as you know, there was so much uncertainty surrounding the pandemic. No one was hiring. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was not, for me, anytime I've ever applied to a job in the past, the maximum I would do was, was two, two, um, one interview and then one of my options, one interview with like two or three companies. And I, they always came back, you know, to say, yes, you're hired. Mm-hmm. This time around, that was not happening. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh my God, like, this is not like my life. Like, what is going on? Like, this doesn't happen. Like, normally I apply to jobs. They like me. They feel like um, I'm enough. I can do well. And they hire me. But this time around, I mean, I'm, to tell you, I was doing 10, 15 interviews and no one was giving me an offer. Nobody made me an offer. And I'm just like, whoa, like, this is serious. Mm-hmm. But as the pandemic was getting even more real, you know, that that dream of obtaining that job, it was just fading further and further and further away. And I, I really started getting somewhat depressed. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. And my husband was just like, what do you mean you don't know what to do? Start your own offer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's take a step back. This man has been telling me to start my own offer ever since I actually got the bar license in my hand, right? <laughs> he was like, I don't know why you're going to work for someone. I think you should start, you should start working. That. And, I, and I said to him specifically, I said, no, because I need to understand the rules of court, how it works. I said, I've heard how it works, but I've never experienced it. Right. So I said, I need to. So I told him, I did tell him one day, but I was just like, I need to get the, the actual experience first. Right. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, I need the experience. So this time around, he was like, listen, I already po- you were supposed to start your farm a year ago. What happened? Like it's been almost it's been almost two years now. It, it what's going on? Mm. And I was like, no, I don't think I can do that. Like, what am I gonna do? Like, I don't, I don't get it. I was like, no, no, that doesn't make sense. And then the more I kept getting, the more I kept not ha- um kept not being hired. Is the more I was just like, oh my gosh, like I, I think he's right. I think I'm gonna have to take this leap. Mm-hmm. until you know we probably like two months after this this is two months without a job now no i'm on three months without a job because i quit before march hit mm-hmm. this is like three three months without a job march april may comes around without a job and like, oh my gosh i really think i might have to do i don't know what i'm gonna do i don't know how to get people how people are gonna hire me you know it was all of these unsureties and all these questions and i was just like it was either sink or swim at the moment. Mm. 
So, so what, what was that day when you like, yo, I'm doing this, like, and then the process? Literally. So what I did have, I did have a business plan written out from the, my very first year of practicing. So mm-hmm. I've always continuously worked on this business plan, trying to figure out what the business name is going to be, trying to figure out the objective of the job, trying to figure out what we're going to offer. So I had these plans already in a folder, right? Just nothing I plan on executing anytime soon. <laughs> um, so you register the business. Okay, cool. What do I do now? Like, what do I offer? Yes, I do know some immigration law, but what do I do? But I do have a friend from law school. He was much more versed in immigration. And he said to me, he goes, guess what? I'll help you. I said, wait, you'll help me? He goes, yeah, start advertising for immigration experience and I'll help you. And I was just like, no, I don't know. Because, you know, it was more so off because I know so much limited information, I was going to have to rely on him substantially in order to make it through any of this process. He goes, no, no, no. But one thing they do say, though, mm-hmm. once you are an attorney, you can learn any niche that you set your mind to because really, really, it's just a matter of research. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, okay, okay, whatever he doesn't know or whatever I don't know, I can always research, right? Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. I love to do. So yeah, I had a friend and he literally, whenever I had some questions about whatever it was, he literally walked me through step by step until I started learning how to be fluent. I started speaking the language, how a lot of immigration attorneys speak the language. I started joining Facebook groups for immigration attorneys. I started joining WhatsApp groups for immigration attorneys. I literally completely emerged myself into immigration just literally trying to accumulate as much as i could mm-hmm. as time went on to in order to be competent you know mm-hmm. and i already knew about that that defense i already knew that i didn't need much i didn't i i because i've been on the defense side and i've been on the creditor side so there's the plaintiff side i already knew that okay this is something i can do so i said okay i'll start advertising for debt defense which i already know i can do and then, yeah, and then I can just, you know, learn immigration in the process. And I, I started advertising and then I went ahead and I, I got my first, my very first case, a deportation case. Oh, boy. Right in the nitty gritty, man. <laughs> One of the most complex areas you can ever, you any immigration attorney can tell you it's deportation defense. Mm-hmm. But my, um, my, my potential client was very confident in me. They were very confident in my ability, and they were sold. And they said, "Okay, we're, we're going to we're going to get you on this case." Right. And that client is still here in the U.S., even though he was ordered deported. We appealed the decision, and now we're back in the lower courts. The appellate court agreed with my position, then remanded it back to the lower courts. Mm-hmm. So now we're still fighting that case. Was that due to like something being expired or like what? No, um, it was just one of the arguments I made. Uh, So, uh, so essentially the client, he was, he went to jail. He was a felon. His last um, conviction, he was found, he was found with a gun. And as you know, when you're a convicted felon, you're not supposed to have a gun. And they're essentially trying to deport him. They were trying to deport him many years ago as well. He went to jail for possession of um, for possession of weapon and ammunition, 
and he spent 10 years in jail. 10 years? 10, 10 is the minimum in Florida. Wow. To, for possession of, yeah, for felony possession of um, a weapon or gun and ammunition. So he got the maximum, went to federal prison, did his 10 years, mm-hmm. and then was released. And then they released him to ICE, you know, released him literally to the custody of ICE. Mm. And, but I was trying to argue. What I ended up finding out was I was trying to argue that even though He's a permanent resident and he is deportable. I conceded to deportability. I said, yes, yes, judge. He is deportable based on these crimes. But I said, however, although he's deportable, he can still get a new green card while remaining in the US. Although he already had a green card. You can, okay. I'm so, so confused right <laughs> Okay. So for example, if I was a permanent resident uh-huh. and I was to commit um, armed robbery, right? Yeah. They're going to they're going to take away the privileges that I have of being a permanent resident once I once a conviction hits, once I serve my time in jail, depending on how severe, you know, the circumstances were, right? I go to mm-hmm. jail, so I go to jail for for 5 years. Mhm. The threshold for not having, with not typically not having serious consequences, is 365 days a year. 365 days. So any immigrant that's going to jail, any criminal defense attorney that consulted me, I will say, listen, the goal is not to get a felony, and the goal is not to get more than 365 days. Okay. Right. So he got. So once you reach that threshold of 365 days or more then that puts you into a completely different category. You are essentially automatically entitled to lose your green card. Mm-hmm. So he lost his green card. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So because he now lost his green card, we are going to have to try to find a way to readjust him to get back a new green card. Gotcha. Right? So I was looking into that option, and I figured out that the crimes that he was actually convicted of doesn't require or it doesn't prohibit him from actually getting a new green card and the government that's their argument right that's the government's argument i'm like no he can get the new green card but however the day of the hearing the judge was not entertaining my argument so he said okay he appealed it put forth the argument appellate court agreed that you know they have a very viable argument so you need to go back and you need to listen to what they have to say Mm. So that's you said that's processing there. Oh yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, so now you're in like the nitty gritty of um, immigration yes. law, man. You got your yes. your hands all the way in. So um, so what what did you find out? Like, I guess were some like misconceptions or things that people were saying about you know immigration law. Like, I didn't know like the green card goes away; you can get it back while you have a criminal record. But um, what were some misconceptions and some things that folks generally don't know that you were able to find out? Um, number one, okay, so the misconception they always think every immigration attorney is in it just because of the money. JJ, you're just only doing this to take person's money, and whether I see that person may be deported, I will still take the case, I will still take the money and allow them to be deported, right? Mm-hmm. But first things first, any honest and candid attorney 
when once you're taking on a case, of course we cannot guarantee a result, right? Mm-hmm. Always 50-50. So I've never told any of my clients, oh, you could you could never guarantee any results. So you never tell a client, hey, we're definitely going to get you off on this, right? It's definitely a violation of the ethics rules in almost every state. I couldn't guarantee you. So I always tell persons like, listen, it's always a 50-50 chance. I cannot guarantee your result. But what I can guarantee you is I will be putting my 100% in this. That's the only thing I ever promise all my clients. And I stick true to that. Number two, a lot of persons are like, you just want this for the money. At the end of the day, I have the legal knowledge. I'm the one who has studied this area of law for years. I'm the one who we I've acquired all this information. So my time it, it is valuable. So yes, you're going to have to pay me for my time that I'm going to spend in order to assist you. Mm. So it's not like I am money hungry, but I do have to charge for my time. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So and and even if I take on a, a case, an immigration case, and it, it's weak. Right. For example, a deportation case, and I realize it's weak. I will tell you that you have a weak case. I will not sell you a dream. I will not sell you saying, "No, I really think this is going to happen." No, I will let you know from the outset when you have that initial consultation where clients ask me what I believe about this case. I will be candid with them and let them know, like, "Listen, this is going to be a tough one, but you're not sure." Right. Or Yes, this is definitely something we're likely to overcome, but of course I can't guarantee a result. So I do let them know what their chances are typically, and then I leave that decision ultimately up to them to choose whether they want to move forward or whether they want to just, you know, just take voluntary departure and leave the U.S. So that's the biggest thing. You do have some persons out there, some attorneys out there, that yes, they may just be in it for the money or they may want to go ahead and just take the money just because. But mm-hmm. I do understand and I do make it very clear to my clients that I cannot guarantee a result. But my goal is to, of course, we are working together as a team in order, in order to achieve your goal. Right. Um, and going along with like uh, just deportation and mm-hmm. being in the country, I don't, um, I don't know if you've seen an immigration nation um on netflix but right right i watched the series and you know ice is a big part of that um and it seems like they're just preying on people's you know like uh the immigrants that come in like the ignorance like you know what i mean like things that they don't know and it's manipulated and um they get them to come to to, they get them to kind of voluntarily detain themselves pretty much and come back and um be put in position to be deported so um what are some like things that you think uh, uh, some immigrants that come in that probably don't have their paperwork in order like you didn't have um, that don't know that can get easily manipulated like by, you know, law enforcement like like ICE? Listen, first things first, always lay low. You always keep low. Like there are some persons out there, believe it or not, even though they know they do not have status in the U.S., they are very present in everything they're very present on social media they want to be what what, they want to do what everyone's doing they're out there drinking and driving for example Mm -hmm. like listen you don't have you do not have the ability 
to act like everyone else. You have to lay low. And this is what I think like a lot of persons are not understanding. Like, yeah, yes, while I get it may be challenging for you, but you don't have the flexibility to act and to behave like these people. So what you're going to have to do, you're going to have to lay low. And number two, don't tell anyone or everyone your immigration status. Mm. Because there are persons who, who are out there, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a friend who stopped being a friend, that they will, as soon as they know information about you, whether you're working here without the correct status, whether you're living with someone, they will call ICE, give them your address and let you know where they are. That's another thing. I would love to point that out. How do you think ICE know where these people are? Hmm. Great point. Have you Great ever point. thought of that? I, ICE... Okay, so there are some persons who are stopped just by some random tech stops or some random stops that they have, or whether they're traveling, that's another thing, do not travel, please don't travel, even if it's in-state, just try to stay where you are, stay where you know people, do not go outside of that, please don't do that, mm. don't take vacations outside in any other state, just lay low. So a lot of these persons, especially ICE knows about what's going on because they're reported. ICE has a line that you literally pick up and call them and you can report the person. Wow. And they will sit, wait on them, wait until they're going wherever, wherever the person describes after watching their pattern, and they will let ICE know that and ICE will watch them. Hmm. Okay. Now, Let's say, you know, I, I do everything right. Like you just said, like um, I'm laying low and everything. Ice comes knocking at my door. Do I have to open the door? Do I have a, like, legally, are they allowed to, to go in? Like, even if I say no? Well, first of all, you don't answer the door. That's number one. <laughs> you don't answer the door. You don't answer the door. Number one. It, it, number two, if one of the residents that's residing at the home will allow them to come in, do they have a right to allow them to come in? No. Just like when you get pulled over, you don't have to allow them to search your vehicle unless they have probable cause to actually search your vehicle. So long as you tell them no, they have no right to actually search your vehicle, just like they have no right to search your home. Do they have a warrant to search your home? If they have no active warrant to search your home, then why are you telling them to, why are you giving them the ability to search your home? No, don't search my home. No, don't search my car. No, don't look around. Show me, show me your warrant, and show me your cause for coming into my home to search my home. If you don't have that, I'm sorry. No, you cannot search my home. So now, does ICE do they function or do they have the same rights as like police? Um, in a, in a sense, they do have. So ICE is they're the federal government. Federal government and state government they both act very differently, yet still they act very alike in some instances. For example, ICE does have the power to arrest, as you know, detain, interrogate, ask questions. However, the difference is you are in the federal realm as opposed to being in the state and local division. So the crimes that you're, of course, any violation of the immigration law, you violated a federal law. So the impact and the consequences are a little bit, are always harsher of course so they do have some of the powers that the police have but technically but it's just on a different level as it relates to your status 
So their their entire goal is if you're here illegally is to try to remove you as quickly as possible, as swiftly as possible. Mm. So now like um, you know, since uh Trump during Trump, like ICE was all over the place, like, you know. But now they're saying, like, um, now that Biden's in office, uh, President uh, Biden's in office, that the you know ICE has slowed down and they're not arresting as many folks. I know you would know, like, personally, like, is that is that the case? Like, are they slowing down? I think they have slowed down somewhat. I think they have slowed down somewhat. Nonetheless, I just believe it's not being highlighted as much because the personality is different. Mm. Meaning. While President Trump, he was very anti-immigration policies. He was very anti-immigrants. He was very anti a lot of, you know, persons coming, anti-refugee. So he was very against immigration law. So that was highlighted a lot more. And not only that, whenever President Trump is in office, he cracked down a lot on the type of crimes that you could arrest non-citizens for mm-hmm. many persons that they were being able to kind of fly under the radar um upon him taking office a lot of those crimes that dhs or ice was just you know looking or looking past because they were not serious crimes involving violence he allowed them dhs to focus a lot of that a lot on that and then arrest many persons for that um, a good example of that is uh, marijuana charge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Pre-Trump, you could you could still have a marijuana charge, especially if it's like for a very minor amount, you could leave, and then you could come back into the U.S. as a permanent resident, and you could be okay, right? As soon as mm-hmm. President Trump came in office, he said, no, any conviction for drugs, doesn't matter what small amount it was, doesn't matter if it was a misdemeanor, I don't want anyone. I, I want you to detain everyone who have their permanent residence or they're not residents, and I want you to place them in deportation proceedings. So many persons who were okay leaving the country before as a permanent resident with very minor marijuana charges, they were coming back and forth with no issues. Upon President Trump's presidency, they were then detained at the airport, had their passports permanent residence card taken and placed into deportation proceedings. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, man, like that's, that's rough, man. But looking into like, um, you know, um, immigrants coming in with no papers, uh, you know, like you did, like we see that, um, happening with the, um, Haitian immigrants that's traveling from all over. Um, we saw it happen in, uh, in Texas, in, uh, Texas where, you know, they were detained and um, there was a story that they told them that they were going to drop them to Florida and they ended up sending them back to Haiti. So, like, do, do um, immigrants coming in with no papers, do they have, like, um, the same rights as regular citizens or is it just anything goes, let's get them out of here, like, kind of thing? So the rights they're supposed to have? especially if they're seeking asylum, they should always appear before an immigration judge so that the immigration judge can make a determination on whether that person qualifies for asylum or whether they fail to meet the standards for qualification to, you know, be granted status 
based on the asylum that they're seeking. That that's the route. Um, mm. May the many other brown individuals that are not of such, you know, not of that nationality are given the opportunity to seek asylum. Yeah, again, but same exact borders or different borders to seek asylum or to yeah, seek they- refuge. Just months before was the Afghanistan refugees, right? That came in, no problem. Exactly. Let's get a place to stay. Let's let's do right by them. <laughs> exactly. Like literally, and just so you know, Florida is the fast track. Any immigrant that you typically see they process through and send them down to Florida, that's one of the quickest routes to get them back. I don't know what mm. I don't know what happened, but in Florida here we do have this reputation like this is the fast processing center. Once you they'll move them from California. They'll move them from Illinois. They'll literally process them through Florida. And once once they're being processed through Florida, you already know they're on their way out. Mm-hmm. So, and for a lot of cases, though, you do have some some persons who have convicted, who are convicted of particular serious crimes that sometimes the judge doesn't allow any hearing at all. They're just literally held there. Or not even have, they're not given the opportunity to have a, a court hearing. They well, of course, they have a they have a right to be here heard by the judge. Mm-hmm. However, they do not have a right to an attorney. Hmm. So any attorney that is um, that is provided to them is either by any one of the legal aides that you know who are already overworked and underpaid. It's one of those persons who will uh, take on their case and help assist them in processing their case or they go and represent themselves and on that very first day the judge orders them to court and they're back in their country in a couple of weeks wow or less than that and then like let's say like these situations do happen and i and i go back um what like what are my options in trying to come back again like is it just i gotta start all over again now so yes Man. so whenever persons they call it E whenever they enter without inspection, right? So when you're crossing the border and you do not, or whenever you're coming into the U.S. and you do not have the necessary, the proper documentation, whether it's a visa um, or any form of, um, whether it's a permanent visa or a temporary visa, you will be entering the U.S. without the proper inspection and the proper documentation. When that happens, then there is a there is a ban, right? You have a ban. On the, especially if you've been deported, you have a time period which you are not allowed to apply for admission to come back into the U.S. That can span anywhere from three years, five years, to ten years, mm-hmm. or that could be permanent. Hmm. That's wow. You know what I was also thinking about too. Like, um, you know, recently we've seen like a lot of the DACA recipients when their DACA's expired, like during President Trump, they would just send them back, like. And we're talking about people that were came here when they were like three years old, two years old. So they go back to these countries like what what is like out there for them? Like, is there is the government assisting them with anything? Is there any money out there like that they give them? Like, is there anything at all? Or they just go back and they're on their own, like completely. Oh, no, they're 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 on their own completely. Wow. A lot of persons have to remember DACA is a status. It's not a permanent status. DACA is only temporary. And DACA actually does not give you any permanent stay. They do not have any permanent resident card. They just have to be temporarily safe, just like TPS. TPS is temporary protected status. 
So it allows you to stay here, it allows you to work, it allows you to do all of that. Mm-hmm. But you just will never be able to obtain a permanent resident card unless you fall in one of the other categories. Because most of those persons who have TPS or they have DACA, they more likely than not, a lot of persons, they come here as a child, they may have come under the wrong name or a name that or a fraudulent name. They may have entered, with, they obviously entered without inspection if it was not in their correct name. Um, whether they entered at one of the borders by, you know, requesting assistance or requesting protection. So also entering without inspection, not having necessary proper documentation. And whenever persons enter into the U.S. without proper inspection, in order to adjust the status, it's almost required for you to leave the U.S. in order to be able to come back. If you are capable of coming back, if you have an avenue to come back. Mm, mm, mm. Otherwise, there are no funds protected provided to them. Um, they are targeted whenever they go back to their home countries because somehow in majority countries, they believe that per, well, so long as you're in the U.S., you have money and you have assets. So when you come back, then you should be able to help us. Like they're targeted, they're robbed. They're extorted. Sometimes they're um, sometimes they're killed. Sometimes they're tortured. It's just a myriad of things. And not only that, they're also starting from scratch with nothing in their home country. Sometimes they have to leave the family they created here in the U.S. in order to go back to nothing to start from the bottom. Essentially, crazy man, crazy. Oh man, all right. Um, it's rough. It can get very, very rough. All right, I wanted to go into like just some different um, uh, cases or examples of things that are occurring and, you know, what, what it means. So I always wonder, like, you know, what does it mean when um, your, your paperwork expires? Does that mean like you're unlawful now and um, or do you still get credit for doing your paperwork correctly? Now you just kind of have to go and get it renewed or go and get something else. Well, it depends on what paperwork expires. <laughs> Let's say green card. Let's say green card. Okay, so, okay, that's a great thing. Um, many persons have a misconception that once the green card expires, something's going to happen. Like, and it's just like, that, that's a huge misconception. Once a permanent resident slash green card expires, the card is what expires, not your status. Okay, okay. So the only time your, your status will ever be taken from you or status, your status can be taken from you USCIS and the government has to be the one that step in to actually revoke those rights. Until then, trust me, you can have an expired green card for 10 years and you can still be fine, so long as you do not leave the country. Because you are still a permanent resident, it's just your card has expired. That proof has expired. So just, yeah, just get a new one and don't leave the country. Got it, got it. Um, What about like asylum as far as like who gets in for asylum, like, because it's, it's so confusing, like, you you know, like, is, are there any rules to who gets in for asylum or and who doesn't? Is it random? Like, how does that work? It's very situation specific, to be honest with you. The judge, the immigration judge is the one who ultimately makes that determination, right? Mm-hmm. And asylum grants are probably 5 to 10%, and 10% is really pushing it. I wouldn't even put it at double figures for 
granting of asylum in comparison to denial. Hmm. Um, it, it's very, very, very challenging um, in order to obtain asylum, depending on your status, right? They have affirmative um, asylum and they have defensive asylum. Right. Affirmative asylum is when you've entered into the country legally or you've entered into the country, but you are not, DHS or the government is not trying to deport you back home. So you then apply for asylum to stay in the U.S. because you fear going back home or there's something going on that results in that, results in that fear, whether it's for persecution because of your, your religion, your gender, your age, your sex, your sexual orientation, or just persecution based on your political affiliation, any party or any country conditions, right? Mm-hmm. So you can affirmatively, essentially, before anything goes bad, you can apply for that asylum. Compared to defensive asylum, defensive asylum now kicks in once you are being, once they're trying to remove you from the U.S., you now have to defend and one of your defense is that you're seeking asylum due to something that occurred in your country, which is essentially, which, which you fear going back to, or you fear being persecuted or killed if you were to be sent back home. Mm. So affirmative asylum cases are, are somewhat easier in fact, in the, in the, um, in the sense of you have time to accumulate evidence. Defensive asylum cases, it's very limited. It's very limited time that you have in order to gather the evidence. And a lot of persons, they don't know that they're going to be placed in deportation proceedings. So a lot of the evidence, they didn't have that proof. So mm-hmm. defensive asylum, very, very, very low, very low, very low stats. Affirmative asylum, they have a little bit better stats in comparison, but it's really hard. Defensive asylum is even more challenging than affirmative asylum. And it takes a lot more work got because it, got you're it. running on a time crunch before that immigration judge. Got it. Okay. Um. So, just with just immigration in general, right now, like you know, the United States is having something that probably hasn't happened in a in a long time, where people don't want to work. Like you know, people that have the ability to work are saying, you know what, I'm not doing this. I don't want to do this. Like I'm I'm not working. Like. And they're not, they just don't have a job. Like they're not working. They don't care. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so um, do you see this as an opening for like um, immigration to kind of like the ideology of, oh my God, they're coming here and taking our jobs and all this kind of stuff. Do you see that changing or do you see um, this being in like an open kind of passageway to, for more, you know, immigration and laws to change because folks don't want to work? Like, or <laughs> what do you think about that? be completely honest with you i don't think that ideology will ever change Mm. i just believe that it is so ingrained in america's history and ingrained in the culture it will always be present right Mm. so even yes it's it's a lot more a lot less of person saying oh the immigrants are taking our jobs well the thing is if the immigrants have been taking your jobs all along, there would have never been a deficit like we're having now. So <laughs> if they had so many jobs to take, then, or if there's so many of them that they were taking your jobs, then why is it that the workforce needs so many employees? Yeah, it's funny, man. I, I, I mean, right, right, right. I, I don't, I don't see. 
I don't see white folks um, at uh, Home Depot like waiting for work. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> oh, right. So it's just like, I thought they were taking the jobs. What happened? They're still here. So, so it's not like they're not here. They are still here. So all these jobs they're taking is just now magically being available that people are so desperate for employees. Mm. And I don't think that because it's because they've now, I don't think anyone who has that ideology will ever be able to accept that they were wrong. Mm. I do think you are correct on that. And I do think there's, there's a difference between certain countries because like Trump was saying, there's certain countries that are asshole countries. Yeah, right. You don't want them coming over. But these guys in, um, you know, these guys in Russia, you know, these right. guys. <laughs> Yeah, let, bring them through, man. Like their family, right? So, um, I think that we kind of we kind of saw like that firsthand, where you know there is this um, you know ideal immigrant that that they want coming in versus you know the Africans and the Caribbeans. Right, and, listen, as soon as that shit gets a little bit of tint, a little bit of melanin <laughs> going, <laughs> absolutely not. Go back home. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So I definitely feel you on that one, man. Um, sure. So what? Sure. What do? You, so where? 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 Um, so you think it's pretty much going to stay consistent with just yeah, the fight of for it? Mm-hmm. Of course. What? What I? What I hope to see happening. Um, you do have a, a, a lot of employers do have the ability to hire persons that are immigrants from outside of the country in order to come here and work in their business on a temporary basis. So I would only hope that during this deficit or during this lack of, you know, a person finding qualified person or even finding person who actually wants to work, I would only hope that employees use this opportunity to go elsewhere outside of the country to find employees who actually want to come here to work. Will that be happening? Probably not as much as it should be, <laughs> for sure. Because while I do understand that Yes, you know, there are some persons who return home. There are a lot of persons who do overstay their visas and do not return back home, which then, you know, leads to a lot more persons here in the U.S. without status. Mm. Right. So so it's kind of like a balance in act that I, I understand that has to happen. But I do hope to see that, you know, if this trend of a lot of persons, you know, who have legal status, do not want to take any of these jobs. I, I think for sure, employees, employees, employers. Yeah, look outside. Looking into getting some some B one B H H B one or H B two visas. Looking into getting these qualified persons over here to take on these work. Mm. Why not? Yeah, yeah, man. Um, I guess we'll see how that goes. All right. Um, I wanted to transition into a little game here before we close out. Call I love it. <laughs> but I'm very competitive. Let's go. <laughs> well, it's not it's not that kind of game. A little activity real quick. Um, okay, no problem. Cool. <laughs> What's your favorite? Um, identifying just a few of your favorite things. Um, so okay, you can cool. keep it short and simple or, you, you know, you could explain it further if you would like. So uh, what is your favorite law movie or show? Okay, so my favorite law movie, believe it or not, it was How to Get Away with Murder. Huh? I was... Uh, have you never seen that series? I was obsessed. It used to be on ABC. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I saw like a, I saw a clip of it. I never, I never got into that wave. No, <laughs> I was obsessed with that show. Like, I love it. I love everything about it. And it was just like, 
wow you know it, it was just one of those things where it wasn't accurate you know 100 <laughs> percent but um there are definite way i i did resonate with some of the things that was actually done like you do have some women out there making these power moves or protecting some people and it's not necessarily what it didn't highlight as much as i would love to it's a lot of law is i don't want to make sure you're guilty sir please don't disclose that to me allow me to create my my defense or whatever it is of you just don't tell me what it is because once you do that that means i have a duty to disclose it and i would not like to do that because that would harm our case mm. okay so don't disclose to me whether you're guilty or not the goal of a defensive attorney is literally play in the gray area and gray area find the deficiencies and highlight those deficiencies mm. right so at that show i was just obsessed with it because it was amazing <laughs> so it, it like i wish it would come back on tv but yeah interesting interesting okay yeah. um what has been your favorite part of having your own practice the autonomy the autonomy to direct my own schedule the autonomy to be able to control my income and this is definitely a new area for me um my favorite part is honestly molding it this has molded me a lot into a different type of human being i view things a lot more differently now and it has changed me a lot and i i'm always welcome to change it has allowed me to also sharpen my research skills and mm -hmm. you know it, it's pretty not only that it's helped me to pay a lot more closer attention to details because guess what i don't have my boss to overlook me to say hey you need to do this because you know ultimately i have i'm the last stop you know at, when it comes to overlooking any documents that my assistants prepare i need to ensure that you know everything is fine-tuned prior to its submission to the court got you got you um what is your favorite law um i do prefer i do resonate a lot more with immigration just based on my own experience and i just feel like you know if anyone is in a similar circumstance of where i was i, I don't you know and if there's and if there's a way to help them for sure, I'll help you. I, I think though, if weirdly enough, it's 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 definitely deportation for me because that is what then really allows me to exercise my research skills in comparison to like, you know, filing different petitions to help people just get their status. Like, you know, if you got married and I helped you out, you know, for you to get your green card. That that doesn't allow me to explore and sharpen my tool um as much so i love i love solving problems and deportation defense allows me to solve more problems and allows me to do a lot more of google research to keep me sharp mentally that okay that would be like type of law right but do you have a favorite law like um you know like uh like if we said like the first amendment or um absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> No, no law no laws yeah <laughs> got you okay all right um what has been um your favorite thing a client has done for you 
my clients have only complimented me. I haven't, <laughs> right? So um, a lot of my clients, my the, the only thing I require for my clients to do, I have always said, listen, the best way, the best thing you can do for me is to, of course, leave positive reviews, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really all I require from them. Like, listen, if you if you were happy with the services that you know our firm was able to provide you, and you know throughout assisting you through this process, just leave a positive review. That's it. Gotcha. So gotcha. that that that's what I love. I love for them to do is to definitely leave reviews from it. Okay. All right. Um. What I know we we talked about some sad stories today. Um. What's been mm-hmm. your your favorite success story? My favorite success story would be where I am right now, for sure. Um, Overcoming all the challenges that I have had. And now being at this point where I have my own law firm, where I dictate my own schedule, where I dictate my own behavior that I, I am able to handle. And, you know, essentially designing my life around something that I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. Literally, I wake up every day and I'm happy with what I do. And I've always longed for that. I've heard persons talk about it. I was never sure I would have gotten the ability to explore that. And now that I'm able to wake up every single day and love what I do, it's my biggest success. success. Mm. So we are, we got individual success. Do you have a success story from like clients that you helped out that you know, were like in some trouble and they got through. Yeah, listen, for sure. So I have a, I had a client. Um, she was at the time she had a pending, she had a, a arrest warrant that was actually out for her that she did not know about. She had a traffic criminal matter that you know we were able to assist with. And after taking care of that for her, of course, taking care of the warrant situation, then we were able to um, we were able to get her deal with that. Then we we're able to actually get her her green card, and she was so ecstatic. She was so excited. And for a lot of my clients, I always love knowing that they tried so long to actually get their green card, and I was the person to eventually make that happen. Mm. To me, there is nothing better than that. Nothing gotcha. that that succeed that succeed past that for sure. Okay, all right, all right. We gotta transition into Jamaica. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite um, Jamaican food? Okay, right now, um, let's say which I've always loved it. It's like fried um, fried snapper with bami. Like, what's, what's bami? Bami is like yuca, yuca that's like pressed together, and then they soak it in some. I soak it in almond milk, and then we fry it, and it's just so crispy and so delicious and so amazing. <laughs> so I love, <laughs> I love fried snapper, and I love fried yuca. Well, yuca or bami. Gotcha, gotcha. You, you, you should try it. I don't think I've tried bami yet. I gotta, I gotta get, I gotta try that. <laughs> <laughs> you would love um, it. All right. Uh, your favorite thing about Jamaica? My favorite thing about Jamaica, it would be the environment and essentially the energy of the island. Mm. It, it's it's one of those things. It resonates with me 
so deep to my core that whenever I am there, I literally feel whole. I, I, that's, there's no other way I can possibly explain it. Like, I feel like I am home. I feel welcomed. I feel a sense of peace every single time I go back to Jamaica. I call it my happy place. And to be honest with you, I think the reason why I call it my happy place is, although they have colorism there, uh, my professor calls it, I was able to develop emotional freedom growing up in that country because I wasn't burdened by a lot of um, what I have been exposed to at a much older age than what was exposed to me when I was younger. So I did develop a lot of emotional freedom and some mental freedom that I feel like um, this this country definitely has, you know, dampened or put a damper on it in some sort. So it could be because, you know, as a child, I had that. So it brings me back to those moments in those years. Got it, got it, got it. All right. Um, what's your favorite place to visit in Jamaica? <sighs> That's so hard. Um, like, place, like, I, I just like to visit the beach. The waters are just so warm, like unbelievable warm. Like I, I prefer beaches over the rivers any day because the rivers, the water is too cold, way too cold <laughs> for my liking. So I, I just always, I always hit the beach. And but my favorite place in Jamaica is Hellshire because that's where I get my fried fish <laughs> and my batman. <laughs> okay, that's made freshly on the beach with my toes in the sand. Nice, nice, man. Yeah, man. I'm- I need to. I need to get to Jamaica. No, you have to. Listen, <laughs> they have the best fried fish in Bali. I promise you, best fish overall, and it's so fresh. It's on. It's on the beach, as I said. So the fishermen come in and bring the fish daily to the vendors, and they prepare it for you. Mm. Wait. So wow. you. So so you. You eat fish. You don't eat meat. You don't eat like regular meat. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm a pescatarian. Right. I. I. Yeah. I'm very much a pescatarian. That's one thing I could not. I didn't do it, you know, during my year where I did not eat meat. But then I realized that, mm, okay, I have to get some fish in my system. <laughs> That's not negotiable. <laughs> got you, got you. All right, cool. Definitely. All right. Um, looking at uh, some legacy, man, like you're kind of building your legacy right now with your law firm um, and your own practice and everything and the work that you're doing, you know, with immigration and helping so many folks right. out. Um, so... Um, what what do you want folks to remember about like the work that you did and um, what you represented and everything as far as you know your work when you retire and all that? All right, I just want them to at least be able to say that I made a difference. That's it. Mm. I want nothing else for them to see that you know that person assisted me and I and I made a difference. To this day, I remember my immigration attorney that assisted me. And getting my actual my green card and he's actually a mentor of mine mm. and I would never forget this individual and he was he was very 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 helpful to my mother and myself during that time and I will never forget his kindness got it got it got it so man. I want to be that person. man I feel like I learned a lot man <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming through unique um one more favor, if you could leave us with your favorite quote and what it means to you. Okay, my favorite quote was actually a mantra. I, uh, after taking yoga, 
<laughs> in one of my electives in college, I, I, I was asked to develop a mantra. And the mantra I developed was each hard day paves my way. Hmm. I like that. Each hard day right. pays my way. Right. So that okay. is my personal favorite quote because I strongly believe in that. Hmm. You still and take yoga? No, I'm not so much now. I'm not so much into it. I do meditate, but you know, not doing the physical side of it. But mentally, yes. Got you. Got you. I do meditate. Yeah, that's definitely a good one to remember, man. Um, those hard days build. They build you, man. So you need for those of us that you know want more information or you know have family members or certain people that were curious about the immigration status or certain issues like and want to hit you up like where can people find you guys i am on social media i have i you can follow me on facebook i would say just just literally google me unique hall and i will just pop up or you can google our law firm page at hall law office pa or hall my last name h-a-l-l law office p-a p's and paul a or you can find us on Instagram at Paul Law USA, H A L L L A W USA. Or you can find me at my personal handle that is Attorney Yannick. So mm. it's A T T O R and Y and my, and my name, Y A N is in Nancy, I Q U E. So it's Attorney Yannick. So you can find me there or you can always text me. I do make myself available to text. Um, you can text our number at 786-878-3626. Or you can call me at that number. Once again, that number is 786-878-3626. And you can always email me. You can find my emails on any one of these social media platforms. Alrighty, man. And always remember, guys, it's always better to get some family representing you that looks like you, that's going to look out for you. You know what I'm saying? Right, and it's not going right. to take your money, like you mentioned before, like with um, other lawyers just taking money. Right. Or, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to get deported easy, easy money. Right, right. <laughs> so uh, support the family, support the family. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Definitely share the program. Um, I think that immigration for a lot of us is something that we don't pay attention to because i hear a lot of black folks saying like well that's that's about like the uh you know spanish folks the mexicans and this and, that and the third but there are quite a number of like haitian migrants as we learn haitian immigrants coming um you know from haiti and different parts of um south america and then um africans you know and uh traveling from different parts of africa crossing the sahara desert you know what I'm talking about? Like one of the biggest deserts in the world. So um, there are all these type of stories that we don't hear about. So we are part of that movement as well. And it's important for us to remember that and to not ignore uh, some of the stuff that's happening with immigration because it's impacting us as well as Black folk, you know, as Black folks too. So very important that we recognize that and we realize that and we don't think that we are outside of it because we are included, even if we don't see ourselves. Uh, share the program, folks. Um, hopefully you learned as much as I did today. And, uh, you know, definitely hit Unique up if you have a uh, question or concern. Um, definitely hit her up and pick her brain. 
And of course, remember, your mind is the most powerful tool in the universe. Therefore, if you can think it, you can do it. If you believe in it, you can be it. And if you fight for it, you can have it. The world is yours. This has been your host, Mr. G, and I will see you next time on Mastermind.